welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, and on today's episode of the Afternoon Light podcast, I'm talking to Alexander Downer. Alexander is Australia's longest serving foreign minister, and he is currently executive chair of the International School for Government at King's College London, and of course, disclosure, he is my father. <laughs> so it's it's lovely to see you. We don't see each other very often. You live in London. Uh, lovely to have you here at the Robert Menzies Institute. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here and uh, congratulate you on the work you've been doing at the Robert Menzies Institute. It seems to have got off to a, a fine start in recognition of the great career of Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. Uh, well, thank you. And you would say that, I guess. <laughs> but that is very kind. Um, I wanted to talk to you today about Australia's foreign policy challenges. Um, but I thought we would just have a quick chat about the Robert Menzies you knew, because of course, you're one of the few people alive today who actually knew Robert Menzies personally and because he died in 1978 so a year before my birth uh, you were still a fairly young man at that stage but but tell me about your recollections. <laughs> well I knew um, Sir Robert Menzies both when I was a child and a teenager into my early 20s and I knew him because my father had been one of his ministers and was very close to him personally. When I was a child um Robert Menzies would come and stay with us in the Adelaide Hills when he visited Adelaide, sat in my father's study, smoked um, endless cigars and filled the whole house with the smell of cigars, something you wouldn't do today. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> or shouldn't do today. Um, Says and, a cigar smoker himself. <laughs> and then um, subsequently uh, saw him from time to time with my parents um, so he was a very kindly man, much more of a people's person than you might imagine from his from his image. But he was um, always interested in what I, as a child or as a teenager, as a student, what I was doing, what I was studying. I have three sisters, and so he took uh, great interest in them as well and asked them a lot of questions and talked to them about their study and so on, as he did with me. He was a, a very grand figure, of course, so in that sense he was both very friendly and personable but a little bit intimidating. Um, but um, he had all the characteristics of what, to use an unfashionable phrase, you might call a great man. Yes, and obviously physically quite imposing by the looks of things, tall and, and I think, I mean, euphemistically uh, a large. larger, a larger man, a yes, larger man. Yes, certainly. Uh, well, in his later years, I mean, certainly when I knew him, yes, we used to refer to him in that uh, <laughs> that three letter word that we don't use anymore. We <laughs> say large now. Yes, yeah, yeah, and uh, and a, a, a wonderful voice, 
by uh, well, at least I can I can hear on his radio broadcasts and TV interviews. He had a a great presence. Yes, a sort of things. sonorous voice. Yeah, which was a great strength for him. Also, like Bob Hawke um, and somebody else who comes to mind is Tony Abbott, a very good user of language, yeah. a master of words. I mean, you know, whatever you think about Hawke and. Abbott, or for that matter, Menzies, these are people who really manage to get their messages across by the use of language. I think it's easily underestimated, this skill. If you use clichés, you use sort of standard phrases the whole time, um, people sort of tune out a bit. Whereas if you create your own images and imagery, uh, it can make a, a, a very big difference. One of the strengths of Boris Johnson, actually, is his incredibly good use of language. Yeah, he's, he's got a, an amazing sense of history too and I think we were talking about this before that Robert Menzies and Bob Hawke both had a sense of history, a good understanding of what had happened before and, and how challenges were addressed and that informed them in their, in their roles as Prime Minister. And for Menzies there was, yes, exactly, and so for Menzies there's, there was this great knowledge of the history of Western civilization. So he would understand classics, classical Greece, uh, classical Rome. He had a great understanding of British history, which if you want to understand modern Australia, it's important to have a good understanding of, of British history, given the influence of Britain in the creation of modern Australia. So um, in that sense, that helped him communicate with people and understand the parameters within which an Australian politician had to work. Um, so, yes, it's true of, of, of Bob Hawke as well, and John Howard. John Howard has a great sense of history. So a, a sense of history, I think, is, as you said, it's, it's really important for political leadership. But, but this ability to communicate and use language, I mean, good, good oratory skills, which Menzies had, which Hawke had, you say Bo- Boris Johnson has, Barack Obama's speeches, whether you agree with him or not, he was captivating. I, I feel like we've slightly lost that in our current crop of, and you know, no disrespect to our current crop of political leaders, but in recent times, the art of a good speech, good speech making... It's, you know, there's a lot of slogans, there's a lot of shouting, there's a lot of listing off deliverables, policies, without creating a story, inspiring people with your use of imagery and words. Yes, well, you have to understand that people are, um, to some extent, rational beings. You know, you hope at least the best of them are rational. But there's no doubt that people are influenced by um, emotion, And if you are a senior politician, when you communicate, you need to tap into people's emotions and the sense uh, that people have of issues at the time when you're dealing with them. So you need to understand the people, you need to be a great user of language and imagery, metaphors. You need to be able to tap into people's emotions. And I think that is true. I think, uh, you know... Recent politicians, I mean, think that a succession of prime ministers, honestly, have not been very good at that. I mean, to some extent, Tony Abbott was quite good at it, which explains why he had one of the reasons why he had such a huge election victory in 2013. Of course, it didn't 
turn out that he had other skills a prime minister needed to sustain his leadership. But nevertheless, that was a skill that he had. You haven't seen it with any of his successes, actually. No. And, you know, great political speeches. People treasure them. They read, reread them. They're, they're oft quoted. So there is something really, really important about making a powerful political speech and, and using language effectively. But, well, let's hope for the future. Uh, anyway, this gives me an opportunity to spruik our Robert Menzies Institute speech competition that we have for later years, high school students. And this is about encouraging the next generation to really hone their oratory skills and we might just create another Robert Menzies or Bob Hawke amongst the cohort of applicants this year and, and beyond. You mean their oratorical skills, yeah, do you? Yeah, mm. yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like your father to pick you up in your grammar. <laughs> I hope you don't do that to normal people. I hope it's just, just reserved for your relatives. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask the advice you would give to the new Foreign Minister, Penny Wong. Senator Wong has been in the job since, well, I guess Monday. Monday she was sworn in uh, officially and then hopped on a plane straight to Tokyo for the Quad meeting with the brand new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. You're a former Foreign Minister of of long standing, uh, the longest in Australia's history. What is your advice for Penny Wong? Well, it's to do what she's done, actually. I think she made a very good decision, or um, Anthony Albanese made a very good decision, or they did, to go to the Quad meeting, despite the fact that it was only two days after the election, because it was really important that Australia continued to give momentum to the Quad. And if we had not had a Prime Minister, or if it had been Scott Morrison as an outgoing Prime Minister, well, um, it wouldn't have only diminished Australia, but it would have made, made, our, um, made the quad weaker um, if we'd done that. It would have shown a lack of enthusiasm for it. So the fact that a newly elected Prime Minister and Foreign Minister would go to Tokyo to the meeting was a very good thing to do and a very good sign. And they seem to have said pretty much all the right things while they were there. They were confronted with the congratulatory message from the Chinese Premier and I thought... Um, Albanese responded to that exactly as he should, very cautiously. I think that's exactly how to respond to it and and basically making the point that your country has imposed a lot of sanctions on us and it's completely unjustified and if we're going to rebuild the relationship we'd like to see some of those all of those not some of all of those sanctions lifted so we can move on. And then the second thing I would say is that Penny Wong is completely right to head off to the Pacific. I don't know, other than Fiji, I'm not sure whether she's going to any of the other Pacific Island countries. But I used to think, um, when I became the Foreign Minister, the Pacific is our backyard. Um, And so that's going to be one of my key priorities. So I wasn't in favour of having a junior minister responsible for Pacific Island affairs. I thought that was the role of the Foreign Minister. And I used to make... um, you know, ad hoc visits to the Pacific when things blew up there. But I also had a pattern of doing regular tours around Pacific Island countries once a year. So I got to know those countries and I got to know their leaders very well. 
So um, I, I think that hasn't been happening in recent times, honestly. I don't think the Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, um, seemed to be visiting the Pacific very often. I mean, maybe she did, but I wasn't aware of it. She certainly didn't publicise her visits to the Pacific. Julie Bishop made uh, quite an effort in the Pacific, actually, to be fair. But um, I think the government, the now new Australian government, needs to invest very heavily in the Pacific. I don't think the answer is going to be to throw a lot of aid at the Pacific. So um, the Prime Minister has suggested that that's what they'll do. I don't think that will make a lot of difference. I don't think the issue is aid. I think it's tender, loving care, you know, constant visits, working with them, helping them work through their problems and when things start to go really wrong, as they have in the Solomon Islands, I mean, I think it's important to expose it for what it is. Um, if the Chinese government is giving money to individuals in countries like the Solomon Islands, I think it's incumbent on the Australian government to make that public. And they didn't do that, and I think they should have done that. So I think... Um, uh, the new government, one piece of advice I'd give to them is um, love the Pacific, uh, but at the same time make sure you um, do expose things that are going wrong there. You, of course, had some real challenges in the Pacific when you were foreign minister, coups in Fiji, of course, and the huge deterioration of the security situation in the Solomon Islands to the extent that... Australia sent the regional assistance mission um, to the Solomons for many years, which kept kept the peace there, at, obviously at the um, invitation of the Solomon Islands government, particularly the coup in Fiji where you're, you're condemning the government in Fiji um, that was not democratically elected, had come in through military force. How did you deal with those those crises and, and maintain good good ties throughout the Pacific. I just want to make it clear to you that there were many other issues beyond that too in the Pacific that we dealt with. When I came to government, um, the Bougainville Civil War was still raging. Um, so we worked with the New Zealanders. They were really important in this process. Don McKinnon, the then Foreign Minister of New Zealand, played a, a, a crucial role in the peace process in Bougainville. So we brought that civil war to an end and that took a lot of time and energy in my, in my first um, couple of years as foreign minister. Then we had the Sandline crisis, which was related to that, uh, where the Papua New Guinea government brought in mercenaries to wage war in Bougainville. Um, so that was a case of us finding out about it through our intelligence services. And um, I just gave the story to a newspaper. It was to the Weekend Australian, to Mary Louise O'Callaghan, um, she ran a, well, the Australian ran a front page story about the Sandline operation, the use of, by Sir Julius Chan as the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea of mercenaries in Bougainville. And, um, you know, this created a huge eruption in Papua New Guinea. And we were able to kill off the whole plan, which was, um, you know, it was rough, but it worked. Um, you're right about the Solomon Islands. We resisted for a long time with DFAT and defence advice 
um, getting involved in the Solomon Islands directly. The departments didn't want us to do it at all. But John Howard and I decided um, that we would nevertheless accept the invitation from the then Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands to send in a force which we turned into a Pacific force called at Ramsey, the Regional Assistance Mission in the Solomon Islands, again brought um, near civil war to an end, circumvented it. We had some problems in particular with Sogavari, who was from time to time the Prime Minister in those days. He wanted the um, Ramsey operation withdrawn and he was receiving uh, all sorts of uh, support, if I could put it that way, from other countries. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, other countries to our north. And at that time, of course, the Solomon Islands recognised Taiwan. It as, did. As China. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's been that competition between yes. Taiwan and yeah. Beijing, between Taipei and Beijing over, over recognition. And um, a lot of money has changed hands in that context. And we knew it was changing hands. And really, um, we had to try to stop it. We did everything we could to do that. Um, and yes, we had the uh, coup in Fiji. We had more than one coup in Fiji in my time, but the last one was Frank Bainimarama's uh, coup. We tried to stop him. Obviously, we failed. I did everything I possibly could, um, including speaking to him myself. Um, we sent a, a naval vessel up to Fiji to stand off the coast there with the pretext that it's there to evacuate Australians in case of uh, a collapse in civil order following a coup. Um, but as a message to send to the Fijians that we wanted um, at least Bani Marama and his people to stay on track, which they duly didn't. So the message, <laughs> everything we did was a failure. It was a success well, and that was a failure. Well, the message might have been heard, but... Not heated. Not heated, yes. That's <laughs> and then there was, um, uh, back to Papua New Guinea, uh, we were really worried about the decline of governance, the huge amount of corruption there was in Papua New Guinea. And the thing is, there's the political class who are playing all of these games and then there are the ordinary Papua New Guineans who knew what was going on and felt totally disconnected from their political leaders um, and, the, you know, saw the whole system as dysfunctional. We really worried that um, Papua New Guinea could fragment. Um, so we set up something called the Enhanced Cooperation Programme, which was a mixed success because its opponents, and you can imagine why they were opposed to us sending in um, incorruptible Australian federal police and... Um, public servants to help stabilise the political system and the bureaucratic system and the law and order in Papua New Guinea. You can imagine why there were some politicians in Papua New Guinea who were opposed to that. Anyway, it was found, aspects of it were found to be un unconstitutional by the Papua New Guinea Supreme Court, so we had to withdraw some of it. But um, we put a huge amount of effort in the, into the Pacific and I could only encourage... Um, Penny Wong and um, Anthony Albanese himself and other ministers, by the way, um, to do likewise and to invest very heavily in the Pacific. Do you think that the signing of a security agreement between the Solomon Islands and China last month was the biggest foreign policy failure Australia has experienced since the Second World War? And that was Penny Wong's statement. 
I might I mean, say that in the context the opposition. Of, in the context of an election campaign. <laughs> of course, every, everything that goes wrong is the biggest failure since the Second World War. I've heard it over and over yeah. again. Yeah. I think it was, of course, it wasn't the biggest foreign policy failure of Australia since the Second World War, but... Um, I mean, Australian foreign policy since the Second World War has overwhelmingly been very successful. It's been a huge story of success, actually. There are many great things Australia has done, and it's been a um, disproportionately proactive country in foreign policy. I think of most recently uh, Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong going to the Quad. Well, we established that. That was our own initiative. It started off as the Trilateral Security Dialogue. But um, we we started, a, and then I think it might have been the trilateral strategic dialogue to start with, and then the security dialogue, and then India was added, so it became the Quad. But that was an Australian initiative in my time as a foreign minister. Um, so we've been incredibly proactive. Um, I would say it was a setback. Um, was was what happened in the Solomon Islands a foreign policy failure? I suppose I would call it a foreign policy failure in the sense that Australia should have... I mean, they would have known and they did know what was going on and they should have intervened. Um, and that by intervene, I mean early on, not late, not after the agreement is signed... Difficult to go to the Solomon Islanders and say, you've signed this agreement, now we want you to unsign it. Um, that's probably not going to work. But they knew it was going to happen and they should have made a substantial public issue about it and they knew that there was money involved and they should have made that public. Um, and I don't want to be critical of the outgoing government, but I voted for them. Um, but they weren't perfect. Um, and I do think they handled that uh, that quite poorly. I mean, the foreign minister should have been on the plane going over there as soon as she saw trouble brewing. And she would have seen trouble brewing early on um, and not left it to a junior minister much later in the piece. I mean, I did think that, yeah. So Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, he is on a, a tour around the Pacific, which is unusual, and clearly sending a message and one presumes the idea behind it is a bit of a charm offensive and there will be some strategy around its post-Australian election and of course Penny Wong is now doing her own tour around the South Pacific so there'll be a, <laughs> a rival charm offensive. How should Australia handle China's influence in the Pacific? Well, so so this, this is the secret um, it's personal relationships. It's the people-to-people -people links which are absolutely critical when dealing with the Pacific. Um, it's the people you know, the relationships with, you have with those people, the trust that you can engender with those people that is going to be absolutely central to this. So, well, we've changed government now. So, um, I mean, I actually think Scott Morrison was quite quite focused on the Pacific. Um, but Penny Wong, um, other ministers as well, are going to have to spend a great deal of time in the Pacific visiting these countries, talking to them about their problems, showing empathy, um, but not to go there and just dish out cash and think that that's an answer. There's been a bit of a sense of that because, you know, the Labour Party's solution to everything is to put their hand into the taxpayer's pocket and spray the money around once they get it out. 
Um, but it's not always the answer. Um, it's the people-to-people links that are going to be crucially important here. I don't know the extent to which Penny Wong knows some of these Pacific Island leaders. She's been the shadow minister for a long time, though. Um, but she needs to get to know them um, because this is our region. And by the way, thinking of our allies, particularly the United States, they've always expected us um, to be the metropolitan power responsible for ensuring that region remains stable. Nobody else is going to do it. I mean, New Zealand can be helpful, but it's a little country. Um, no one else is, is going to be able to do it. And we need to do it. So um, the personal relationships will be critical. So it's a really good thing that Penny Wong is making an immediate visit to Fiji and um, she should go to Papua New Guinea soon. But she needs to go to the Tongas and Samoas and, um, you know, Kiribati and Tuvalu and all of these places, Vanuatu. She needs to go to these places and she needs to get to them pretty soon. So you say people-to-people links are, are critical here um, and less cash, more more relationships. The Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme has, has been great news for the Pacific and, of course, great news for the Australian agriculture sector. This is an industry, particularly fruit-picking, horticulture, where Australians have tended not to want to work, but Pacific Islanders have been very keen to put their hands up to come out here and work. Um, is it – what about – extending that scheme and um, there's been suggestions of even, and this has got a more of a climate change focus on it, extending permanent residency to people of the South Pacific into Australia to enable them to, to come and go freely and, and work here freely. Um, obviously that has you know, some logistical issues and you've got to question sort of the skills base of, of a workforce. But that's a huge olive branch to the Pacific and a huge investment in that relationship and in people, not not just cash. It's an investment in people. And the Pacific Islands do struggle with their economic prosperity and job creation and trying to get idle youth into employment. What about those types of programs of expanding them in, you know, in, in gra- much greater number than they currently are? Well, I think the Pacific Mobility Scheme could be expanded, um, no doubt about that, and I think that would be quite popular in the Pacific. Um, But you want to be careful not to hollow these countries out, Um, not to say, you know, anybody um, with skills in particular can leave whatever the country is and just come and make their future in Australia. I mean, plenty have done already, and and, uh, in New Zealand, of course, as you know as well. Um, But when I used to think through that issue as a foreign minister, I used to think that was the the risk. I mean, if you had um, free mobility between Pacific Islands and Australia, um, uh, like you do between Australia and New Zealand, I think the the problem is just huge numbers of people would move to Australia. Um, Maybe not. Our weather's not not, as good. Well, I'm not sure about that. We don't um, have... The sort of cyclones that they have, True. I suppose, at least True. in um, volcanoes, in the southern Australia, yeah, um, volcanoes, yeah. Um, so I think I, I wouldn't, you know, they, they would, the people themselves would be welcome, um, but but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it would be the right solution. Um, I think it's better 
Um, sure, to have them come and study here and to learn skills here, um, but to take those skills back to their own countries to try to uh, strengthen the structure of their own countries. Robert Menzies was Prime Minister the second time around from 49 to 66, uh, which was, of course, uh, in terms of the geopolitical environment at the time, the Cold War. That was the biggest single issue and the threat of communism, which was all about the Cold War. Um, that was that was the thing that foreign policy analysts and makers worried about. And, of course, in Malaysia, in Southeast Asia more broadly, but Malaya, Indonesia, Korea, Vietnam, you had had battles um, that Australia was involved in, military um, confrontations that Australia was involved in in order to combat the ideological rival of the West, of, of liberal democracies, which was communism. Fast forward 2022, we obviously have another ideological rivalry, still still communism, but more in an authoritarian guise with um, China leading the charge, of course, and, and Russia um, really threatening in Europe. How do we use the lessons of the Cold War to face the ideological rivalry of 2022 and beyond? So we won the Cold War um, and we won it. So that means we win again, does it? (laughs) (laughs) If we do the same thing again, we'll probably get the same result. That's exactly it. One hope. You're completely right. Um, So what did we do? Um, We... Um, the liberal democracies. We created NATO. Of course, there was CETO as well, the ANZUS Agreement. The and CETO, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organisation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the um, uh, security agreements with um, US that US had with Japan, um, South Korea, um, obviously Australia. That uh, United States also has alliance agreements with the Philippines and Thailand still, even though CETO doesn't exist anymore. Um, So we created a network of alliances um, and those alliances um, were too powerful for um, communist China, which of course was through its its sort of harder line communist years under Mao Zedong, um, was economically very weak. Um, and the Soviet Union, um, not as weak as China, but um, economically quite weak as well. In the end, they couldn't counter this. So then we won the Cold War. Um, that completely changed the mindset of the West, if you could call it the West, of the liberal democracies. They decided, well, you know, that's the end of that rivalry. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We don't have to worry about defence anymore. There was an expression used through the 1990s of spending the peace dividend on other things altogether. This didn't didn't eliminate, if you like, um, authoritarianism. Um, and we saw China change, and I think we many people thought China was on a pathway to something politically very good. I personally didn't ever think that, but uh, many people did. And certainly economically, it was on a pathway to something very good. Um, Okay, so now it's all gone wrong again. China under Xi Jinping has reverted to type, um, has become more Maoist than Deng Xiaopingist. And um, Russia under sort of the latter Putin, not under the earlier Putin, but under the latter Putin has become, you know, a bit more Stalinist. Um, So they've they've gone back um, to what they were. 
Um, and so we go back to what we were. That's right. If you want to behave like that, we've shown you the way once before. We've shown you what happens through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s during those 40 years. We showed you what we can do and we will do. So if that's what you want to do, that we're very sad about that. We're very sorry. We think it's a huge mistake. But nevertheless, we won't sit back and take it. Um, and that has kind of happened. Yeah. I mean, I know there are divisions in sort of new divisions opening up in Europe over how to handle Ukraine and Russia. Um, but basically, the NATO countries have come together pretty solidly in support of Ukraine and against Russia. Um, the Quad is an illustration of a broader point that the liberal democracies in the Indo-Pacific, as well as the um, European NATO countries, uh, the UK particularly through AUKUS, um, are determined to balance China's power and to, they're all sending a message to China, don't even think about changing the security status quo in the Indo-Pacific region through the use of force. Everything must be negotiated and everything must be done within the rules-based international system. Changes can be made, but that's how they must be made. Um, and I think um, that what's good is, you know, bad things happen, but sometimes good things come out of bad things. What's good about the um, effect of the absolutely preposterous Russian invasion of Ukraine is that it has sort of recalibrated thinking. Um, we've moved away from a sort of Jewy idealism that, you know, military forces aren't needed anymore and just as a world we can all live together and sing Kumbaya. Um, we've moved away from that back into um, a world of realism um, and, you know, it's really it has its critics, but it's really impressive to see the new German Chancellor, who's a social democrat, um, take a much harder line position on these security issues than, um, than the CDU, than the, if you like, conservative Chancellor before him, Angela Merkel, who is, you know, very much into this sort of talk of confrontation and standing up to autocracy and so on is old talk. That's the Cold War talk. We don't need to go down that path anymore. Well, people have learnt. Those types of sentiments and regimes have not gone away. Um, so we stand up to them just as we did through the Cold War. But a huge difference is China's economic strength. I mean, China is the factory of the world. It obviously um, for some time has been building infrastructure, economic infrastructure and strategic links throughout Asia, Europe, Africa and we have to face the consequences of that. The Belt and Road Initiative has and, and China's economic power is incredibly alluring for countries and that's not the China we were faced with in the 1950s. And Russia, the same. Russia's economy back in the 50s and 60s was, was a, of, of no great consequence. But, of course, now Russia, while economically not a huge power like China, it does have energy resources that countries that oppose its military activities at the moment, countries depend on for the functioning of their economies. So that's 
the added complexity, which is a, a wicked complexity. And, and countries around, for example, Southeast Asia, obviously the Pacific, they are finding this sort of idea that you choose sides or engage in these alliances or um, group groupings of like-mindeds with Australia, US, UK, Japan, Korea and the like, they're finding that they don't really want to make that choice because the, the economic relationship with China is too important to them. Um, even if they don't like some of the aggressive activities, for example, in the South China Sea and, uh, and of course, what we've seen go down in Sri Lanka, a salutary tale. Yeah, so um, there are a couple of issues there. First of all, um, nobody's saying that we should be pursuing a policy of containment of China, um, that we should be cutting off our economic links with them or that we want other countries to cut off their economic links with China. I think we would like to reduce our dependence on China. Um, so in two ways, I mean, we don't want um, our critical supply chains to be vulnerable to the whims of Beijing. So we we need to be careful about that. Um, and secondly, Chinese investment um, in critical national infrastructure. We have to be very careful about that, given their record. Um, but overall, I mean, we, of course, should continue to engage economically with China. What message we're sending to China is don't cross the line. There is power in the Indo-Pacific that you will not be able to defeat or overwhelm or subjugate. Um, and um, there are structures that demonstrate that. Um, so we're happy to engage with you, um, but operate within the rules-based international system. Um, and I think in the case of Russia, um, um, it, it was the same. I mean, of course, we were all happy to deal economically with Russia, I signed a um, nuclear safeguards agreement with Russia, which would have provided a pathway for Australian uranium miners to export uranium to Russia for peaceful use, of course. So we've been happy to engage with Russia, although in the case of Russia, they have crossed the line. I mean, literally, as well as figuratively. Um, they have not only ripped up the rules-based international system, um, but they've invaded a neighbouring country. I never thought I would see it. So inevitably there will be economic consequences that will flow from that. And yes, uh, we're all paying a price for the economic response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, you're seeing higher energy prices. Of course, they're going up for a lot of reasons, but that's one of the reasons energy prices are going up. Um, so, um, you know, that that is contributing to an already inflationary trend. We just have to deal with it. We just have to accept it. In the case of China, I think this whole idea of um, um, the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, needs to be th seen through, amongst other things, the lens of Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific countries um, building supply chains with each other um, rather than being overly dependent on China. Um, and, you know, woe is the United States for pulling out of the what was then called the TPP. Um, and I'm hoping that um, after his visit to 
um, East Asia, President Biden might review his own thinking on uh, becoming involved in a trade agreement like that because it would be wonderful to get the United States into it for all of those sorts. I mean, a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons being to help reduce our dependency on China economically. Yeah, oh, it would be wonderful to see a change of position in the United States, but I, I suspect after the midterms. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, there's domestic political implications there. Look, the final question I wanted to ask you was about the United Nations. You worked for the United Nations after leaving politics as the United Nations Secretary-General's Special Representative on Cyprus and that was a... Special advisor. Oh, sorry, special advisor. <laughs> it's important. Within the... It doesn't sound important to <laughs> but the it listener. Is in the U- UN. But within the UN system, there's a difference yeah, between a special I, representative I, and a special advisor. I have no doubt. Having been an Australian public servant, I know the nuances of <laughs> titles. The nuances of nuances are so important. Yes, indeed. So the United Nations response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has really exposed the inadequacies of the multilateral system. And it's a system that, of course, Australia post-World War II wholeheartedly supported the establishment of um, out of the ashes of the League of Nations came the United Nations and the uh, Security Council of course, represented the geopolitical realities at the time with the five permanent members and then the others um, being elected. But we now have a permanent member of the Security Council who, as you said before, has invaded a neighbouring country, which is in clear breach of the United Nations Charter of International Law. What, what What is the point of the United Nations at the moment, aside from making statements that, um, you know, I'm sure we here in Australia agree with, but, but it, it has been shown to be impotent in the face of an absolutely egregious breach of international law. Well, I think there are, there are some uh, a number of issues there. First of all, the United Nations is a huge organisation with many agencies. So some of its agencies, um, like UNDP, United Nations Development Programme, do perfectly good good work. Um, I mean, it's only going to make a big difference at the margins, but it does make a difference. Um, um, the United Nations um, High Commissioner for um, Human Rights um, and the Human Rights Council sort of set the benchmark for um, human rights norms. I think that's um, sort of fine. Um, and there's um, uh, UNHCR, the Refugee Agency, which, um, I mean, it's very political. Um, they're, they're basically in favour of free movement of people around the world um no borders of people but um you know that's a that's a bit of a problem but um but you know they do 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 a lot of very good work on the ground not to gainsay that but when it comes to security issues um the united nations uh is always you know the security council is so often deadlocked so on ukraine obviously that russia has a veto um china has a veto um, and you can't get a resolution through the Security Council um, stopping Russia. Um, so that has always been thus, and you're not going to get rid of the permanent members and you're not going to get rid of the vetoes. But in a sense, that is a weakness of the United Nations security system. Um, but on the other hand, it wouldn't have been created without giving those countries a veto. So um, that's the price you pay for creating it. So I suppose the 
the other point I'd make about the United Nations is therefore the Secretary General um, has the so-called bully pulpit power, um, the power of influence. Um, um, yeah, it goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation uh, through the use of language, through persuasion, through um, moral standing. The Secretary-General um, should be able to exercise a great deal of influence. And honestly, I think to be brutally fr frank, um, uh, Antonio Guterres doesn't do that. Um, the guy was the Prime Minister of... Portugal, I dealt with him myself actually over East Timor um, back in the uh, late 1990s. Um, nice man and um, he was certainly very helpful on the East Timor issue, no problem there. But this is a job too much for him. Um, you need a really major global figure as the Secretary General of the United Nations, somebody who will inspire, if not everybody in the world, um, but will inspire many. And the trouble is that it's the same with most multilateral institutions like the European Commission um, or the presidency of the European Council. The thing is, you get, um, you get second-rate people into those jobs because the national leaders don't want to be um, overwhelmed by them. So I had a very interesting conversation um, uh, two or three years, it must have been before the pandemic, three years ago with um, Nicolas Sarkozy, who was the uh, president of France. And we were talking about Tony Blair and I said to him, well, why didn't you appoint Tony Blair, the president of the European Council? And he said, well, I really wanted to. Um, and I tried to get other European leaders to agree to it, and many of them would, but Angela Merkel wouldn't. And I said, well, why wouldn't she agree? I mean, after all, um, you know, she's, um, I mean, she's right of centre, or was meant to be right of centre. She was right in the centre, I would say, of politics, Angela Merkel. Um, she wouldn't have any ideological objection, nevertheless, to Tony Blair. And he said, well, the reason why she didn't want him, is that she thought he would be too powerful a personality. Um, and this is the problem with the Secretary-General of the United Nations. I mean, you know, even the Americans. Uh, I remember talking to Condi Rice about um, this issue when eventually Ban Ki-moon was elected as the Secretary-General and there were a couple of other candidates. And um, I won't go into who they were and what she said about them, but, um, I mean, the point was that they could be trouble. Mm. So they go for Ban Ki-moon, a nice guy, a lovely guy, but, um, you know, when the Syrian civil war broke out and Ban Ki-moon went on TV and say, said, I call on all parties in Syria to put down their weapons, you can see them watching that in a bar in uh, in Damascus and just... just <laughs> Not have quite trembling in, in fear. Bars in Damascus. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, <laughs> whatever. Um, in a coffee shop in yeah. Damascus. And, um, and just laughing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, they, just, they, are, they, they are personalities who have lacked authority. Well, perhaps the next Secretary General we can have someone to aspire to. Well, the present one's only just been re-elected. So, so a few years yeah. yet. Yeah, well, maybe an Australian one. We, we did have... Uh, Memorings of an Australian one a few years back, but that was quickly put 
put to rest, probably yeah. for the best, well, he actually. The and he Nations. certainly would have been authoritative. <laughs> he would have, uh, I think would he would have melted the whole system down as he did the Australian <laughs> government. Um, <laughs> Even his own colleagues wouldn't support him. Imagine what he'd be like running the United Nations. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, a bullet dodged, clearly. Um, Alexander Downer, thank you so much for joining me on the Afternoon Light podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, it's a great pleasure to do it, Georgina, and good luck with the Robert Menzies Institute. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.